people would say to us, yeah, but marriage equality passed, or yeah, you know, Barack Obama's president, or yeah, but we're, we're kind of past having conversation with people. And then Donald Trump was elected president, and it felt like overnight people were all of a sudden interested in what we had been trying to do for four or five years. From the studio of Rule 29, I'm your host, Justin Ahrens, and this is Design Of. And today, I'm so excited to have one of my teammates from Rule 29 join me. Joy Reschke, welcome to the show. Thank you. So happy to be here. I am excited to share with you uh, Samantha's story, and I know you know who she is. So why are you excited to be a part of this episode? I've always admired Samantha, and she comes from uh, an area that I come from too, being from California, and I just respect how much she desires to see relationships flourish by speaking the truth in conversation, all in love. And it's really incredible to see how she's made her life's work out of that. I love it. Well, uh, this episode took place in California, as you stated, mm-hmm. at her uh, office in California. So let's get into it. Let's do it. We're in Echo Park, okay. Los Angeles. We're actually, the our office is at a film studio that was the original location of the first LA studios. Charlie Chapman opened up film studios not in Hollywood or the West Side or Burbank, but right here in Echo Park. Wow. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin? Yeah. Silent Films? Yeah. Right here? Yeah. He's on the, uh, see him on the sign out there. Huh. Look at that. Yeah. We're like not even two minutes into it and you're already teaching yeah. me something. That's great. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of things that I, I'm excited about covering here today with you, but I think the biggest is um, you, you're just one of those people in my life that, that uh, have always really inspired me. And I feel like your story is something that um, I just really appreciate. Do you like to go by Sam or Samantha? Either. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You're open. I'm very open. I love it. I usually write Samantha and introduce myself as Samantha, but very few people call me that. Hmm. It's a long story. It's not that interesting, yeah. but... Yeah. But to see my face, I look super interested right Yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bringing you in. You're, yeah. you're yeah. into it. <laughs> what was going on at Fuller at the time... Kind of where were you at in the headspace of just kind of culture that was going on? Yeah. You know, can you paint that picture a little bit? Yeah. So um, Fuller Seminary is the largest evangelical seminary in the world. Um, And I was there at a very unique time, culturally and politically, I would say. Um, It was, you know, just before marriage equality passed. Um, But precipitating that, the conversations about sexuality and religion and Christianity were um, very robust and controversial and um, really picking up steam, I think, in media and in churches. And and so Fuller, you know, as a a graduate seminary that was training um, religious leaders to go out into the world, wanted to create space to have this conversation. Um, and there and what, was and what conversation is that specifically? I, you know, it's the conversation about faith and sexuality, and so it in some ways Fuller was protected because marriage equality hadn't passed yet, and so they could have a conversation without needing to change policies or um, student handbooks. You know, they could 
they, they had some leeway there, which was interesting. And so, um, you know, my first and closest friend at Fuller was, uh, at the time, the only openly gay student at Fuller. There had, obviously, there were other gay students and had been other students who had been out at, uh, while they were at Fuller, but they had graduated. And, and so the institution said, you know, we want this to exist. We want there to be a space. Um, Chelsea, would you start it? I didn't know Chelsea was, was the only one, quote unquote. At yeah, the time. at the time. And she had the great foresight um, to say, yes, of course, but also I don't want to do this alone. This has to be a conversation that happens in relationship and collaboration. And um, so she asked me to, to lead it with her. And, and we knew even at the time we had a hunch that, you know, people who would feel comfortable talking to her um, would be different than people who felt comfortable talking to me as someone who, you know, was straight and um, that that like partnership was actually a really important part of the conversation. Um, and so we went about it, you know, the way we had kind of been trained uh, at Fuller in our lives previously to be relational and to start with friendship and um, community. So we would host monthly dinners um, and we would have themes to each dinner uh, and just invite people to come and share a meal together and just start talking about their experiences and um, what they believed or what questions they had at the intersections of faith, gender, and sexuality. Um, and we were both studying theology and the arts at the time. Um, and so art pretty quickly came into how we programmed these conversations. So we would invite um, current students and alumni students to, to share art that was sort of born out of these conversations and then talk about it. Um, and then eventually in March of 2013, uh, we had just been to Sundance for the first time with Fuller and we thought, that was pretty cool. <laughs> we should we should host a film festival at, at Fuller um, to keep talking about these conversations. And there's no um, medium like film to start and, and carry conversation that's difficult and nuanced and complicated. Um, and so that really is where, you know, Level Ground started. So, Joy, so far in Samantha's story, I mean... What do you think mm -hmm. about her? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm in awe of how she was able to see this from multiple levels. So first of all, she saw it as something that was affecting the country at large. And then she saw it as something that was important for her student body to be aware of and to understand uh, from an educational level, but then also from a relational level. And that became personal for her, especially as she was dear friends with Chelsea and understanding how she saw the world and wanting to do this both from a, again, like a personal level, but also seeing that this would have impact uh, for years, that this conversation wasn't going to end anytime soon. Yeah. And I love the climate and the perspective and the lens of, of having this conversation within faith yes. or non-faith groups, which mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. uh, I think, really inspiring to me. And I, I agree. What better way to have this conversation than through art mm -hmm. um, and film? Have you ever been to Sundance? I haven't. No. Do you know about Sundance? I you know have. Sundance yes, is, right? of right. course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you been? I have. Yeah. In fact, the first time I met Samantha, well, it's not the first time I met Samantha, but one of our deepest conversations that really started to shift me in this conversation we had at lunch in between some movies that were really 
absolutely uh, just incredible. And I think one of the things about film that's interesting is it really puts you in a different plane. I mean, it does everything from disarm you to open up just, you know, your mind to possibilities and conversation and story and the human condition. And it was really, it was a really exciting day. Like literally it was one of the days I, I go back to often and be like, man, that was a good day. Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. there. Yeah. What do you think film or art specifically allows us to do that, you know, a friend to friend or even stranger to stranger conversation wouldn't do? How do you think that this platform is unique? From an artist standpoint, what I think art does is it allows you to communicate in a way that you really can get down into the depths of just your humanness, your soul, uh, how you see the world, how you feel pain or fear or joy. And I think that's just really amazing. You know, someone who might not might not be able to get up and give a speech could write a poem that would just, you know, blow your mind or if you read about a certain situation but then you see a film about it and you're taken away into this world where it's all of a sudden has this context to it, this framework. And I think that is that is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, to me, one of the most attractive parts of this project is that to get people into a room and to experience something collectively, but then what's really beautiful and amazing and interesting and terrifying about it all at the same time is that you could have 50 people in the room and they all see it or interpret that art a little differently, but then have a conversation about it. I think that's where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. I love how it's an indirect way to get to very direct principles, right? So it's not, I'm seeing something in Justin or you're seeing something in me. It's about seeing something that's outside of us and then being able to draw our own experiences into that. And it becomes a little less scary that way, um, but nonetheless transparent and open. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think disarming as yes. well. Yes, a great word. Yeah. What was the name of the organization before Level Ground? I One, love that name. Uh, yeah, when we were at Fuller, it was called One Table. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were your plans before One Table and Level Ground were kind of present? Did you have plans? I didn't really have plans. Uh, I had accepted a job, actually, to work at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And... What was the deciding factor? What were the things that made you say, you know what, I'm going to do this? Because one of the things that you and I talked about, you probably don't remember this, it was very important to me, but I just felt at the time, I so admired the fact that you want to be a part of that conversation. And as you had said earlier, the way people would talk to you versus the way they would talk to Chelsea would be different. Mm-hmm. And I just I just really admire that about you. Yeah, I think two things very acutely happened that changed my mind. One, so we hosted this film festival and it became kind of a big deal. We had Dustin Lance Black, who's an Academy Award winner, who directed Milk, among many other things, and Roger Ross Williams, who's also Academy Award winning director, uh, come screen a film called God Loves Uganda. And so we started getting some media attention, and the religion and uh, media director at GLAAD called me 
and said, what you're doing is really important and there aren't spaces where this is happening. And I don't know what your plans are next, but I would just encourage you to keep doing this if you can. So that was, that felt big. Mm-hmm. It was kind of an oh crap moment. Uh, and then Roger Ross Williams hired Chelsea and I to write a film discussion guide to go along with God Loves Uganda. So I love that film, by the way. So good. Yeah. I think it's still on Netflix. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was also a huge deal. We were getting paid to do something that we'd been doing as, you know, a volunteer student group for the last year. So I got off of those two calls that happened within a week of each other and just kind of had a oh shit moment. I'm not going to Grand Rap I'm not going to Grand Rapids and things are gonna change. Mm. Yeah, it felt scary for sure, but also like it was already happening. And so it was my choice to say yes to this thing that was happening and get to be a part of it and not know where it was going to go, but just say yes or resist that and yeah. do That's my own great. thing. From your recollection or perception at the time, what, what was the most important part of having this conversation or, or you know, creating safe spaces mm-hmm. for these, these things to happen? I remember Chelsea and I talking a lot at the beginning of culturally we felt like people relied on political or policy change to move people and to move culture and what we had sort of seen and experienced with a lot of quote unquote cultural movements was that Um, policy would move but then we would never actually integrate or embed those changes into our actual relationships and so you can't change your mind about something you can't change your behavior about something if you don't have a relationship with someone who's different from you and it's really in those friendships that you learn how to use new language you learn how to embrace and accept people who are different from you or come from a different place from you And so we kind of anticipated this happening in the conversation about sexuality and gender identity that we were kind of on the precipice of political change but didn't have the tools to embed that change into our conversations and our communities. And so we needed and wanted to create safe spaces where actual cultural exchange could happen. And we knew, you know, that happens for people in in school and in educational spaces, but it doesn't happen a lot in social spaces. So we didn't want to create like a curriculum or create a workshop program that people would come and get trained in because that is a different part of your brain. We really wanted to create social spaces where people would meet someone different from them and actually become friends with them. This whole dialogue I was having with Samantha at the time was just so refreshing and wonderful and I think although the LGBTQ space isn't something that I personally have, you know, any um, problems or challenges with, for example, but there was other people in my life and that I I did. And what I, I loved about working on this project with Samantha was it was really making me realize that those who are different or, or I was uncomfortable with in my community or I perceive them to be was really a problem. How, how do you see that or, or 
you know, where are you challenged when, when you're in a space that maybe you're, you're uncomfortable or not quite sure how to approach mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. I completely relate to that, Justin. I've been thinking a lot about that, whether it's in this space or other spaces. I've recognized that even in our work here, that it's very easy to perceive projects or relationships from a creative standpoint, for example, and not understand or empathize with our clients or our partners' point of view. Uh, I see it in my own relationships in my family with my friends where it feels that initially my gut reaction is either frustration or feeling insecure even because I can't relate to the way either they live their lives or the way they communicate. And it can be the smallest thing to the biggest thing. And what I've recognized is that our posture towards bigger conversations, say about this or other things, really are dictated by how we relate to the small things and can't expect ourselves to have an issue over, you know, how you put the dishes in the drawer and then not be able to uh, transition that to have a conversation like Samantha does on a regular basis. So I've just become humbled and realizing that having a posture of learning and of openness is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, it's interesting to say that because you're one of those people in my life that I feel are uh, very open from hmm. a, a posture standpoint. I, I feel that uh, there is a natural posture of kindness and love there uh, Thank you. and acceptance. And so I think that's really powerful. So whether that's fake or not, Joy, I, mean, I, <laughs> I hope it's real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back to our story. You start your first year, mm-hmm. and it was called On Level Ground, mm-hmm. and it was primarily the film festival yeah. at the time, right? So how did you create the space? Like, what did that look like? So we were very naive and very ambitious. We did our first festival. We raised $40,000 on Kickstarter, which was awesome, and then hosted a 10-day-long film festival with less than, or just about a year of planning, uh, two mostly full-time staff, and that was really it. Everything else was volunteer-run, and that was crazy. I would never do it again that way, but uh, we definitely pulled it off. And what we did, you know, we we had been to a lot of festivals at this point and heard the conversations that happened after. So if you picture sitting in a movie theater, you're sitting shoulder-to-shoulder with you know, hundreds of other people all looking, facing the same direction. And so we tried really hard to find non-traditional screening venues where people could, at least after a film, turn their chairs and look at each other um, and be on the same level as each other and be in a, a conversation together. So we did a lot of film screenings around dinner tables or lunch tables, meals. We would, um, instead of programming hundreds of films like a lot of festivals we programmed a smaller amount of films and really emphasized having conversation so instead of just a director talking we would have a director and a pastor and a psychologist and host a a more nuanced deep conversation about the content of the film not just how it got made or what the budget was or how did you get that actor and it was really successful people were definitely transformed in what they encountered and the people that they met and the, the conversations they had that went well beyond what we could have planned for. But we just set a space 
that it could happen. Can you think of one of those moments or conversations that really moved you or made you, you know how you have those days where you go home and you're like, yeah, this is why I'm doing this. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of those. The one that is my favorite to tell is about my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a very loyal level ground supporter. <laughs> so she's been to every festival and after the first festival, I remember we were having a conversation afterwards and she just said something about how she realized that um, people who voted Republican were not bad people. (laughs) And it was, you know, this is before our current political moment and it, it was a big moment. It was her recognizing that we can't just split people into sides and then make assumptions about who those people are that we had to build relationships with people and understand why they voted the way that they did or why they believed the way that they did and so that was a really to see that kind of transformation happen to my own mom was really exciting and special we also had, there were a, a number of people who encountered, and this is still true, um, a number of people who encounter their first trans person through Level Ground, and that is always a really powerful moment for people. When they meet someone and see their art and, and not just have an idea of what it means to be transgender, but actually meet somebody and recognize oh, I'm attracted to this person, or, oh, I wouldn't have known that they had transitioned, or whatever it is, our assumptions about gender identity are very complicated, and to actually encounter somebody and have a conversation and and understand what life has been like for them, those are always really powerful moments. That's beautiful. Yeah. So that first festival was what year? That was 2014. And Our first level ground festival. Yeah. yeah. So, the next couple of years, what, what happened? How did you How did you evolve? How did you grow? Share with yeah. So, like I said, we kind of started just trying to catch up to this thing that was already happening. So we didn't have. A big. We never sat down and we're like, we're going to start an organization, and here's our five-year goal or five-year plan. Your strategy. Yeah, Yeah. we were just really trying to respond to where things were moving. So that first year, we invited people from all over the country to come to the festival that was in Pasadena, and then people started inviting us to come to their cities and to their communities, and so we ended up traveling all over the country hosting roadshow festivals, which was really exciting and really challenging on so, a small so, budget. Yeah, so give us an example. Like, what does that look like? So you'd show up and you would do what? We would show up and we would, pro. well, we'd be invited to, you know, come. I have this space or I have this community I want to invite. And so we would talk with organizers and curate and program specific content for what they wanted to be talking about and what we thought would, you know, work well in that city or with that community and then uh, we would we would go with the work we would try to work with as many local communities and artists as possible and would host a mini version of what we had done in Pasadena so we'd have film screening short film screenings live performances and really in-depth 
conversation. We were Portland, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, and Toronto that first year. And then... And would you guys... Would you guys curate and lead the discussion, or would you collaborate with the local organizations, or how? Did yeah, we were always collaborating. So we were—I didn't have the language at the time, but we've always been producers in that sense. So we would find out who in that area. We didn't want to bring in anyone. We didn't want to assume people weren't already having this conversation. We just wanted to help curate how it happened and and the kind of work that was mm. initiating it. So. It was never about us hosting the conversation as much as us doing the research and having the the pre-production kind of meetings to figure out who are the people that should be speaking about this film. And that was that was really exciting. So, you know, we screened in New York, we screened uh, Paris is Burning, which is an amazing documentary. You have space to do all that you intend to. This movie is about the ball circuit. A competition amongst gay people under one roof. It's like crossing into the looking glass. A house, their families, kids with broken homes, or no home at all. My name is Angie Extravaganza, and I am the mother of the house of Extravaganza. I'm Willie Ninja, the mother of the house of Ninja. Ninjas hit hard, they hit fast. We come out to assassinate. I am Pepper LaBeja, the legendary mother of the house of LaBeja. And I've been around for two decades. Raining, that is. And had a, a journalist from the uh, Wall Street Journal there. We had a drag queen there and uh, a pastor. And the three of them just talked about the film and the history of the film and what it meant to the community of New York and to the queer community and the trans community. And they were all people we had never met before, but just through research found yeah, we really want to hear what this person has to say. And they live in New York, and this is their their community. It's amazing, because that combination you just gave is usually, like, how someone starts a joke. Yeah. And you're actually <laughs> starting, like, community conversation. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So how, as this was happening, and, and you were having these experiences, how did you, how did it change you? Yeah, that's such a good question. I've been thinking recently how I'm probably like the best witness test for if level ground works as a a concept. (laughs) Can you, through relationships with people who are different from you, change how a person understands themselves and, and how they understand the world around them? What we call now experimenting in empathy. And I think it's hard to even give pinpoint moments, but I'm a totally different person than I was in in 2013. I think my ability to listen to other people and to not make assumptions or judgments uh, and to not even need to ask questions. So it's it's not about me trying to figure out, you know, what what is your orientation or do you date men or women or um, what what kind of church do you go to? Like, I I don't have an agenda when I go into these conversations. I really try to want to get to know a person and let them tell me what they want me to know about them. And to, I think maybe the biggest way it's changed me is an ability to mirror how other people present themselves Mm -hmm. and to let them yeah, lead that conversation and, and what I need to know because I don't I don't need to know anything about you. It's not it's not mine to know, um, but it's mine to listen and to respond and to walk with you through that. And yeah, my ability to just enter into a situation in which 
I don't belong or I feel uncomfortable or like no one else like me is there and find a way to, to be in that space. And that's been, yeah, really exciting. I mean, I have such a, uh, very diverse pockets of people I spend my time with and I think that's a real gift. I think that's probably how we're supposed to live our lives. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't happen. Instead of labeling Very many everything places. and then just yeah, responding to that. Yeah. So let's talk about the climate today mm-hmm. from when you started. How has it changed with this conversation? Um, just culturally, if you were to, from your perspective, based on where it was when you started in 2013 to now. Yeah. I know there's a lot of dimensions to that. Um so you can dig in wherever first pops in your head. Yeah. It's interesting because I think we've been working for four years on this idea of how do you create safe space for difficult conversation? How do you get different kinds of people in a room to have dialogue? Uh, how do you encourage dialogue over division? How do you have convicted civility? All these questions we'd been like working on and programming around for years. And people would say to us, yeah, but marriage equality passed. Or yeah, you know, Barack Obama's president. Or yeah, but we're we're kind of past having conversation with people. And then Donald Trump was elected president and it felt like overnight people were all of a sudden interested in what we had been trying to do for four or five years. So that was really, it was a big turning point culturally, obviously, but I think for our organization as well to say, this is, this is what we want to do. This is what needs to happen uh, for our country and our community and, and people to move forward. And it felt like overnight everyone was like, oh, we're really divided. <laughs> As if, you know, the, the writing wasn't already on the wall, but we've been developing a way to try to to connect people across division, not directly, but through art. Uh, if you go back to the idea of you sit in a movie theater and you're facing the same direction as people, shoulder to shoulder, that moment where people turn to face each other is a really powerful moment. So when you invite somebody to look at a film uh, together or a piece of art together how do you encourage them to turn towards each other then and talk to each other and so that like turning moment is uh, very significant and I think something that we've been working really hard to understand how do you how do you curate that how do you program that how do you facilitate that moment knowing that's that's the transformation that's the power and it felt like culturally we've all become aware of how we're just sort of facing the same direction as people we don't really look at them we don't really understand them we're not in conversation with them and so um it's been fun to think about people care about that now they kind of want to know what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we came up with it and how it's working and can we put any metrics around it those are some of the things we're thinking about now I mean, how beautifully simple is that, just from a metaphor standpoint, right? Like, we're all looking one direction when we're watching uh, a film, and after the film, you, you, part of it is simply just turning to face and see mm-hmm. each other. Uh, what strikes you there? Mm-hmm. I agree. 
What I like about that metaphor is that there's both views. So all of us naturally are going to perceive the world based on our experiences and based on how we're wired so that we don't have to discount it. But the important part is taking that and then moving towards someone and creating something in between. So what we know through art and you know the work that we do is that collaboration typically almost always makes things better right and in this case that's one of those things and I love when we do creative thinking exercises here or even when we interface with our clients we are taking in so much more than we initially thought of and that's the power of teammates that's the power of um, connecting with people and what I loved about what Samantha talked about is making a space where people feel that they belong there. And I think we're all looking for belonging and to be seen. And I think that the spaces they're speaking of are the places to do that. Yeah, and I think, you know, you were talking about how they, you know, turn and, and see each other and, and you create space. And I, I think really what she's doing, she's removing all barriers mm-hmm. and giving the opportunity to see a certain perspective. And then see a different perspective by looking at someone that just experienced the same, you know, piece of art or whatever, but then really seeing them and then getting to know them at a level that you otherwise wouldn't have this moment not brought you together. Mm-hmm. I think that's the beauty of, of really this whole concept. I agree. Yeah. So this is maybe too hard of a question, but I'm asking anyways. Yeah. So how do you get people to turn and look at each other? Yeah. I actually don't think it's as hard as we imagine. I think so much of the work is in posturing. And so you can help people turn towards each other if you invite them into a room where they feel like there's something there for them. And that's where I think art is so powerful, is that it can be this social reason to be in a room, this like cultural reason to be in a room, and then it's, it's all about how do you create moments where people can interact. And so we've, you know, everything that we do, all of the shows that we do, festivals, there's always interactive elements of, you know, take this piece of paper around and see what you can find out in this space. Or take this little quiz to find out something about your personality and go find someone who has a different personality from you. Or answer this question and go find someone else who answered it differently. So those are moments where people are starting to, you know, turn towards each other. And then it, you know, the power of art is that it sort of does it inherently. The work is actually getting the people in the same room, but the art, if it's good art that is provocative, is going to make everybody a little uncomfortable. And that then becomes what people want to connect over. And so I think so much of, of that turning moment is, how do you make sure everybody feels like it's a space that's meant for them or that they could be welcome to? And then how do you unsettle that space just enough that people are willing to let their guards down a little bit? And that it happens more easily than I think people would imagine. Is there any particular forms of art that you feel uh, do this better than others? I don't think so. I mean, I think that anything that's live is really powerful. So when you have a a dancer or a theatrical performance or 
you know, and anything that's real people moving in front of you is very powerful as opposed to a film or, you know, a, a painting. But we are able to program even a film or a painting in a space that's immersive. And so I think it's the, the immersive piece of it that people need to feel like they're totally in what, what's ever happening. And I think it's the multimedia kind of art that does that. So pairing a visual artist with a performer, with live music, with, you know, whatever, all of that that's happening, um, it's a social event, and it kind of takes over. Yeah. So in the years you've done this, in that community moment or when people are turning, Mm -hmm. what are some of the moments that have been just really disheartening? And you... Or... I've really shifted you of like, whoa, I would have never seen it that way. That's a tricky question. Uh, are you an Enneagram person? I am. I'm a three. That makes sense. I am a seven, so I reframe everything positively. So it's hard for me to say something that's been let disheartening. Me you, let, me, let me ask you the question differently. Uh-huh. Okay. What conversations do you think we're having now that are maybe a little easier or open to have? And what are those that are still really hard or getting harder? Yeah. Just based on your experience totally. here. Totally, yeah. 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 I think I think a shift that's happened that, that we felt very directly is it's hard to have a conversation with someone who just disagrees with how somebody identifies. Uh, and then I think that's... That's becoming more and more true. If you think of identity... Just, fundamental, just fundamentally, they're not open to even hearing any other thing than what they believe in. Yeah, or just that someone is gay, and so any part of a person's identity that can be kind of objectified or like removed from them and talked about as if it's this yeah, objective part of who they are, as opposed to, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a person, and this is one part of my personhood... And I think that that's becoming harder because identity, identity is kind of everything and nothing at the same time. And so now your political views or the person you vote for is can be part of your identity or the way you understand what's happening to the climate becomes part of your identity. Like everything becomes part of your identity in a way that people can take it apart and agree or disagree with it or say, well, this part doesn't fit with this part or, you know, that... I think in some ways the problem is that we're not thinking about each other as people and and identity politics and identity markers they are important and they are necessary in a lot of ways but when we talk about identity as opposed to talking about people I think that becomes really problematic and it's really hard to get people outside of that mindset. And do you see um, I'm not letting go of this one. Do you uh-huh. see that increasing? Because to me it feels, and again, this is really easy again to look at something and label it and believe it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be in that space, but it feels to me uh, like that's the space where it feels more um, divisive. Yeah. I think we're definitely more divided. At least we're aware of more division. Mm. In, in some ways I think what's interesting is that we're we're actually if you think about a label 
uh, I don't even want to use an example because then it becomes just about that right, example. Right. But as it, I asked the same question earlier, I'm like, well, then I'm labeling. Yeah. So, yeah I feel you. <laughs> uh, but if you think about something that you assume everybody who is, let's just say, liberal, for liberal, we agree about these certain things. I think what's become more complicated is that we're making that assumption without actually understanding that 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 identity label doesn't really mean anything on its own. And actually, if you were to have conversations with people who are also liberal, you would find so many points of disagreement. And so we, we can't even, we haven't even learned how to have a conversation with someone who quote unquote identifies the same way as we do, but it means something different to them. And I think that's, that's where a lot of times people will say to me, you know, how, how can you get somebody who is voted for Trump and somebody who didn't vote for Trump, like, or or white supremacist? Like, at what point is someone too far gone? Or like, how do you even begin to have a conversation with that person? And I think we, we use that, the extremes as an excuse to be apathetic. Because I think it starts with, well, have you had a, a conversation with somebody who you think agrees with you about Whatever. what you actually believe or, you know, a, a, any part of the nuanced, complicated parts of what it means to try to construct an identity and worldview today? And so you can start where the stakes are much lower and, and practice an ability to, sh- to find a shared language, to find actually the point of disagreement. Because once you find the point of disagreement, you can either change someone's mind or let it go. It, it, it sort of de-escalates. Um, or have a deeper understanding of the Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the goal is not to go find a white supremacist and try to transform them or convert them. It's to look around your own family, your own community, your own school, church, where, you know, wherever you spend your time and actually have meaningful conversation with those people first mm-hmm. and practice what it means to answer questions about who you are and what you believe and listen to other people try to construct their own versions of who they are and what they believe. And I really do think that as we build those muscles, we'll be able to start expanding the circles of people that we can talk to and that it's, it's slow and gradual in some ways, but it's also transformation is electric and moves us in ways that we can't anticipate. I mean, honestly, how awesome is she? <laughs> I love it. I love the phrase, transformation is electric. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. And I also love this concept of, you know, you'll be in a, you go to a conference and someone will tell you about a concept or, you know, how to change this or do that. And I love how she frames it by learning how to tell your story and then learn how to ask others about theirs in a community that you know, right? Like your family, your friend groups, whatever. Mm-hmm. And practice that and build that muscle. I, I just love that. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think it's important to remember it goes both ways. So often, I know for myself, when I can sense that the other person is willing to be vulnerable or they already have been, then I'm much more willing to open myself up. So I've noticed in a lot of conversations that I'm intentionally desiring to get to know someone, sharing a part of where I'm at in process, not something that's been complete or figured out necessarily, but showing like, you know, I'm going through this. I don't know the answer, but I want to share with this with you because I care. Yeah. I just, I never want the, the extremity and the like 
immense division we feel right now to be cause for apathy or not talking to people who are different from you because I don't think we need to let it become that. I think we're in trouble if we do. Awesome. Yeah. So level ground now. Some big, big things are happening, big changes. Yeah. So we, you know, we started as a film festival and we started doing film and art and we went on the road and we're all over the country and then I think felt tired and like we wanted to be home and so we built a community art space in Pasadena and we ran that for a couple years and then we started to have artists come back to us and say hey thanks for creating this beautiful platform for my film like I never had a conversation about my film the way I did at Level Ground and now I'm working on this next project and I'm in development and I'm wondering if you can help or I need I'm looking for a person that can help me with this part or I need a location or I need a, you know, just whatever coming back to us and saying, we loved how we felt and how we were treated and the conversations that happened at level ground. Can you keep walking with us essentially? And so we realized what a wonderful compliment. Yeah, it really was. And I knew at the time, anytime an artist said, you know, this is why I made this film and I've never gotten to talk about it anywhere else. Like that was, we had arrived, you know, but then to have it a step further of, of people coming back and saying, can you be a part of it from the beginning was really exciting. And so the long and short of it, I would say is that the organization, we've always held it like an experiment in and of itself. And so now we're moving into this space that is trying to support artists in development and pre-production and concept and how do we build artists' careers, how do we build projects, while at the same time keeping our ability to draw in diverse audiences and to program spaces where cultural exchange happens. And so, yeah, that's what we're doing now. We've we produced our first film that premiered at Tribeca this year, which is really exciting. Congratulations. I've Thank been wanting you. to say that to you in person for so long. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. It was pretty nuts to go from programming, you know, this small what felt like a small boutique festival to now being a filmmaker at you know, one of the most important festivals in the country. Yeah, hold on, let's not go past that too quick. Yeah. I was sitting there last night and I was watching the trailer and I was kind of reading about it and I haven't seen the film. I gotta send it to so you. Please do. Yeah. I gotta see it. Um, I was fascinated by the whole concept of it. And, yeah. And I, so I didn't know, know about it until then. But my point is, I saw you at the film festival yeah. and I'm thinking to myself, you and I, you know, I kept going back to the Sundance conversation yeah. over lunch. I'm like, how great is this? So so I, I, I want to kind of explore two things and you can put them together if you want a, how did you learn about story? How did you get there? Mm-hmm. And then well, let's start there. And then I'll ask my yeah. question. Well, it's a great it's a great story because I think it really encapsulates how Level Ground has been evolving. Uh, one of the I met a filmmaker whose name is Chase Joint at Outfest, which is LA's biggest film festival. It's a one of the biggest LGBT film festivals in the in the country, if not the world. Uh, I met Chase in 2013 before we'd ever hosted the first Level Ground Festival. And Chase was living in Chicago at the time and really loved the film that he had at Outfest and so went up to him afterwards and we were chatting and ended up bringing Chase and that film and a whole art installation that he had 
to the very first Level Round Festival. And we just hit it off. We really collaborated well together. And so Chase was a part of many festivals over the years. And we had a great relationship. When I'd be in Chicago, I'd try to see him. And then in 2017, he had just been at that, that year's festival. And he called me a few months later and said, I'm working on this new project and I'm going to be shooting in LA and I need a, a production manager. Would you be willing to do it? I think, you know, you were level ground could be really helpful. And I said, thanks so much. That's like really amazing that you yeah. called and thought of me. I don't know what that means. I've never worked on a film and I not sure that I can do it. And Chase said, well, I'm pretty sure that you can because I think this is already what you do. <laughs> and so from that point, it really became understanding what, you know, I and Level Ground had been learning over the course of the last seven years and how it translated really well into film making. And so we... And that's around the concept that you said earlier about you guys are actually producers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're thinking strategically about everything <laughs> so that artists can tell the stories they want to tell and connect with the audiences they want to connect with. And so we actually shot this short film, Framing Agnes, in uh, our old Level Ground office. And it just became this really natural, easy collaboration. And so... We, we premiered at Tribeca in this past April and just got funding to, to make the feature film. So the, the short film has been a proof of concept. That's so great. So for, for, I'm going to put the link to the trailer in the show notes, yeah. but um, set the stage. Pretend, uh, who's your favorite talk show host? You know, it's so funny you bring up talk show hosts because you know the, the feature is going to be about the historical talk show hosts. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I didn't even, I didn't yeah. even know that. Yeah, look at that. Um, well, I, I would but say pretend that whoever that is, yeah, I'm he or her, yeah, and you're and you're on my chair and you're talking to me about your new movie, yeah. coming out. And yeah. so, Framing Agnes, tell me about it. Yeah, so Framing Agnes is a experimental documentary hybrid film about never before seen case files from transgender history. So it's a very uh, multi layered, really compelling story that sort of collapses time between now and how we were understanding and constructing gender identity in the 1950s. And so we've cast the who's who of celebrity trans culture making, people like Angelica Ross, who uh, is in Pose and just got cast on American Horror Story, and Zachary Drucker, who worked on Transparent, and Silas Howard, who's uh, directed something everybody has probably seen from High Maintenance to Tales of the City. They're talking about their own lives and then also reenacting these actual case files, word for word, that uh, were discovered just two years ago from the 1950s. And it, is it because, um, and by the way, if I'm blowing something on the film, I'll edit this out. Yeah. But is the power of this the fact that uh, that wasn't something that was thought um, that was going on or relevant or happening or not discussed or what what was the the magic there? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question and a great and very interesting way to word it. I think the magic of it is that, and this is something that's true of culture in general, but we tend to to treat stories as singular and exemplary 
And so from the 1950s, truly as we were constructing how we understood sex and gender, there was one case study of one gender nonconforming person that kind of became uh, the way we understood sex and gender. Oh, One period. Yeah. I, I mean, that's how we treat case studies. Like, there is this one person, and that's that's the story that we tell. That's what you learn in sociology class. That's That becomes sort of the litmus for everything else. And we do that all the time with celebrity and stories. No, that's, and yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, there's that TED Talk, the... Uh, danger of a single story or something like that. I'm a storyteller, and I would like to tell you a few personal stories about what I like to call the danger of the single story. And so I think the magic of this film is what happens when you blow that up and you realize that no one exists in singularity or isolation, and there are so many, like we were talking about with identity, so many parts of who we are and the worlds we inhabit that make all of these conversations really complicated. And so one person is having an experience of feeling really isolated where other people are super well-connected and are really taking care of each other in a, a community. And one person is uh, white and middle-class and gender non-conforming, and one person is black and poor and you know so you you have all of these layers that get added in one person who's really depressed and has um mental health needs unrelated to their gender identity that's that aren't being treated Mm. um so you start adding in all of these complicated layers and you kind of understand why we simplify it and we just say this is the story of gender non-conforming people when the reality is much more complicated and much more nuanced Um, I think it's also really powerful for anyone from a marginalized identity to recapture, reclaim part of their history and see, you know, there's, these are my ancestors. These are the people who were, came before me and I never had access to their stories and what a powerful moment. But it's, it's a, it's a cool film because it, you know, in Tribeca, we weren't in a, an LGBT shorts program. We were in a. A a doc program, yeah. And at Outfest this year is a you know all LGBT queer content. So the the film plays really differently depending on who the audience is. But there's it's such a powerful story that connects on so many levels. It is really connecting well with lots of different kinds of people. So let's talk about some personal stuff here. Yeah, I I was just envisioning when I was driving over here. What was it like? How did you feel when you found out it was at Tribeca? Do you remember that day? Yeah. Because <laughs> Chase called me. Uh, he was he was on a plane when he got the call, like waiting to take off, and he answered the call. And he called me right away, and it was just... The, the weird thing about films that I've realized is we finished that film almost a year before we found out. So mm. you're just waiting, and you're waiting, and you're getting rejections from... Sundance or South by or you know waiting to see what's going to happen wondering and then all of a sudden it happens and it just feels like a, a total whirlwind like you're in an alternate universe I think probably the first thing I felt was just like relief like it's it's an experimental film it's a, a hybrid reenactment doc it's it's not it's not in a story like we've seen a lot and so to have a place like Tribeca get it and say yes that just felt like okay we're not crazy (laughs) like this is this is gonna work and so 
yeah, we just kind of rode on that high for a while. And then they, you know, they, they take very good care of you. They want you to feel like it's yeah, so a big Yes, let's talk about deal. that. So what is it like to be on the side of the road? So much free coffee and free <laughs> alcohol. We got, like, champagne bottles engraved with the name of the film on it. I mean, it felt a little bit like summer camp where yeah. you're in it and you're with all these friends and you're, like, making connections and feels like nothing else exists outside of this bubble. And then it's, like, two days later it's over and you're like, oh, like, what was that? Did that actually even happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it felt, yeah, it felt really, really exciting. And then to get to, you know, because it's a, it's a short film, it's a small budget, so I'm the producer, but also moonlighting as the publicist and all of these different roles. So trying to navigate, you know, we got to do, like, uh, an exclusive Getty people shoot with Angelica and Chase and made it in the, like, People Magazine exclusive Tribeca photo set. So, so stuff like that of just, yeah. like, what a cool thing to try to to get to navigate and learn at this stage as we're just getting started. And did you guys have, uh, as traditional at some festivals, obviously, did you have conversation after the screening? We did, yeah. How did that go? What was that like? It, it's always a little frustrating to me because I think you never, most film festivals aren't programming for that conversation. So you have a, a program at, at Outfest, we were in a premiere program and there were like 10 or 15 films in it, in this short film program. So you're just never going to get to have a meaningful yeah. conversation about what's in any of them. And so they're not, um, they're not organized for the conversation. So it always feels like not enough. So Tribeca was the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah we're, but by contrast, we got to screen the film at a LA Public Library. There were not very many people in the audience. It was like on a projector, on a screen in a library, you know, not, nothing fancy. But we got to screen the film and then talk for 45 minutes about it. And it was the most, like, int- I was learning new things about the film and the story and really getting to understand how it's connecting with people in so many different ways. But that's, you know, it's a 20-minute film in a 40-minute conversation. Like, that's, to me, how we should be thinking about and programming art. That's pretty fantastic. So, now what for that? What, what's going on now? How does that work? So, we... Chase is Canadian, which means, uh, well, Canada gives money to its artists, which is very nice. So, <laughs> the film or the feature is half-funded through Canadian funding, and we'll be fundraising for U.S. money for the rest of it. And we have enough money to go to camera in December. So the short film is really a proof of concept for the case files and the, the experimental reenactment format. But we'll be adding... There are uh, six case files that were found, and the short has just three of them. So we'll be adding the rest in, and then like I had mentioned, looking at the talk show format and kind of turning it inside out. Mm. So we'll be seeing talk show hosts ask questions that were asked in the 1950s and uh, Donahue oh, and Ellen. Cool. And, yeah. and then we'll see our characters from the, these historical case studies get to answer back at them. And so it's going to be a really, you know, the talk show is such an interesting format and has always been really interested in sex and genitals and gender. And so kind of 
getting to push back on the way mainstream culture has always viewed gender nonconforming people is going to be a lot of fun. That is fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Um, and then obviously you probably have no idea, but in a perfect world, when, when would you close and when theoretically would that maybe be screened? Yeah. Are we talking like two years? So yeah, start to finish probably two years. We'll shoot in December and in February and then hope to get, uh, a picture lock in early summer so we can submit to festivals late summer early fall for a 2021 premiere they shoot in LA yeah that's cool yeah we'll shoot right in the film studio behind us that's fantastic yeah so Level Ground's evolving and you're starting this new new era or it already has begun Mm -hmm. is that the proper way to say it or how would you describe where you're at now with you personally and, and the organization yeah I think I think about our history in sort of these two-year phases and seasons, and I think for the last two years we've really been building a transition and a shift of what the organization looks like, and this fall we'll be ready to announce it publicly and more officially let people know this is what we're doing, and we've been trying to catch up to it for a long time, and we've caught up and actually are building a three-year, five-year strategic plan. And so that's been a really fun, a fun turn of events. Yeah. And and so that will be, yeah, this fall will be our sixth annual festival and really officially launch this new era of Level Ground. Oh, so exciting. Can't yeah. wait. Thanks for allowing us to be a part of it. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, course, we wouldn't be here without you, truly. Well, that's not true, but uh, we appreciate it. And, and, you know, we haven't really talked about this, but just being a part of your journey and your story um, there are so many points of change in our organization but also in a variety of individuals just of language or awareness or mm-hmm. um, you know uh, the project we worked on last year with Enneagram mm-hmm. was super fun and, and had some incredible conversations so whether you know it or not yeah. you were programming conversations not even being present so I think that's really the power of this organization and what makes me really yeah. excited to be a part of it. Well, thank you for saying that. That's always my goal. I never want Level Ground to be the meeting the place that has to exist. It really is just the launching point. And so I love when I hear about conversations that are happening or artistic collaborations that are happening that I have nothing directly to do with, but that were sparked because of an event we had or a relationship mm. that got started at Level Ground. So that's truly like the best compliment I think I could receive. I oh, love it. So I'm going to put you on the spot and uh-huh. when your full feature comes out, mm-hmm. I want to meet with you and the filmmakers. Oh, for sure. And we'll do another conversation. That would be so fun. Because then we can talk about the film and where everything's at. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. And at that point, our actors are going to be doing some real cool things in the world so that would be awesome Samantha thank you yeah thank you so much Justin so what a great episode of a great human being how would you think I loved it it was incredible well thank you so much for joining me today Mm -hmm. I really I really hope this isn't our last time no I'll be back awesome well I want to say thank you to my inspiring and absolutely lovely friend Samantha Curley And I'll put these uh, URLs in the show notes. But for more on Samantha, go to samanthacurley.com. To learn more about Level Ground, go to levelground.co. And to stay on top of the progress of the movie, go to framingagnes.com.
We'd also like to thank Sleeping at Last for being the soundtrack for our show. For more on Ryan and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping at Last wherever you get your music from. And to Design of's audio engineer, Steve Wick, who, Joy, I really think loved this episode so he could explore and use some of his favorite sound effects. Oh, my! <laughs> okay, everybody, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please tell others about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. And please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com backslash design of podcast. See you at the next episode. I hope so. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.